Yeah, it's good to see you. Thanks so much for being here. I'm excited about this. Happy Thanksgiving, belated Thanksgiving. Many of you look fatter than the last time I... <laughs> Just kidding. Um, I need to invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. I titled this message um, something I'm very proud of. Here's the title. That time when the Holy Spirit killed a couple of liars. So it should give you an indication as to how crazy this text is. So be ready for it as it comes. Before we get into it, though, I want to give you uh, a little bit of background regarding where we are in the book of Acts. And in order to do that, I want to tell you a story. Um, A number of years ago when I I was... uh, In my early stages at one of the churches where I was serving, I had just become the preaching pastor there, and um, I had told a story in one of my sermons about how I was really bad at building things or fixing things or generally anything that has to do with anything householdish, right? I am not a good homeowner. I totally understand that. My kid, my boys do all my work for me. I order them around because I don't know what I'm doing. So I tell stories like that about how I fail miserably at trying to hammer things in or whatever. In fact, I didn't even have a hammer. I talked about how I had this little play hammer that was given by one of my kids had in one of their boxes. That was the hammer that I had. So the next week I showed up to church and in the front row of the church there was a bag and that bag was from a local hardware store and inside was a hammer but like a really good hammer, like a graphite hammer. They're made of graph. I don't know. If it's graphite, whatever, steel. I don't even know, what this, but it had a good weight to it, and it felt like it was something that um, said Stanley on the side, so I thought that's probably a good thing. Anyway, I carried it with me up to the pulpit, and I said, look what happened. Last week, I said that I don't have a hammer. In fact, uh, I have this really horrible hammer, and I showed up this week, and in the front row was placed this little, this, this beautiful hammer. And everyone's like, why, that's great. And, and I said, I also have always wanted a BMW. <laughs> ha, 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 right? Anyway, go home, come back the next week. And before I start, I'm walking down the hallway. We're gonna go to, um, to my office to print off some notes. And before I get there, there's this Eastern European man who I didn't know attended our church, but he came to me and he said, hey, 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 come, 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 come. Pastor, pastor, pastor. And I said, oh, okay. I'll come with him. I thought, you were going down the hallway. Uh, all of my upbringing, thinking about Soviets in a very negative light were coming to light in this moment. I thought, oh, okay, this is gonna be sure death or whatever. So anyway, I walk out the back door and in there, in the, in the back parking lot of our church is a BMW. And the guy said, here, here, take the keys, these yours. And I, I said, what? And he said, no, no, you, you, you take. I, I have others. <laughs> um, anyway, are the others nicer? No, I, I, I said, no, he's not going to take your car. But last week, you said you BMW. It's a BMW. I said, no way. But I would like a nicer house. Um, I have thought about that for years and how, on the one hand, kind of crazy it was. It was an indication, though, of the kind of church that I was in. They loved being generous. And you have to give this guy some credit. Uh, you, you really do. Here's a guy who showed up to church one day. He's, I don't know, part of the church for maybe a little while. And he decides that 
He heard the pastor say the pastor likes BMWs in jest. This guy's got a few of them. He goes home, grabs one, comes the next week and says, here, you can have it. I mean, that's kind of gener- the kind of generosity I-, I can get on board with. He heard of a need. He met that need. Just like Barnabas. You say, who's Barnabas? Well, Bar- Barnabas is kind of one of the early heroes of the, of the Christian church. You'll learn more about him as you get through the book of Acts. He ends up becoming one of Paul's partners as he goes on a mission trip. But Barnabas first shows up, oops, Barnabas first shows up in Acts chapter 4, verse 32 and following. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Everybody's sharings is a description, of course, of the early church, but they had everything in common, everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. You're starting to get Luke's point here, right? They're big sharers, right? The kind of people who, if you needed a BMW, would probably show up with one at the end of the at the end of the hall in the back parking lot. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands or houses, they sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as, as any had needs. The apostles are the ones who are handing this stuff out. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. You'll understand why he's a son of encouragement right now. He was a Levite, a native of Cyprus. He sold a field that belonged to him, and he brought the money, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. I would like to be his friend. That kind of generosity, apparently, according to Luke, marked the early church. In fact, what I just read sounds idyllic, right? Utopian. Sounds like the kind of place... The kind of heavenly place you would want to live. There have been people throughout the history of the church who have said, yes, we should force this upon people, and they become Marxists. That's what we need. We need to get the church to all get together, and we'll, we'll distribute all the money. I was just telling some guys earlier in the back here that a church that I knew of in a place that I, where near I used to live, they had a rule where they would have everybody who was a member give them uh, all of their money, Right? So if you become a member of the church, you give them all of your money, and then you, the church, gets to distribute it to you as, as they think they see fit. So this, this weekend, I'd like to start doing that. Um, <laughs> sounds idyllic, though. I mean, this would be an amazing story. People generously giving to one another. He is a great, positive example of how one ought to use their money for the sake of the kingdom of God. Ananias, not so much. You say, who's Ananias? Well, he's the next guy who shows up, and he is, in a negative sense, what Barnabas is in a positive sense. Luke compares these guys, in fact. Ananias and Sapphira are going to do an act very similar to what Barnabas did, but the outcome is going to be very very different. You say, what is the outcome? Well, it's that time when the Holy Spirit killed a couple of liars. Aren't you excited? (laughs) Right. So, here's what we're going to learn. This passage has everything to do 
with sin in the church. It has everything to do with what happens when sin takes root in a church and it starts to spread in a church. This is a a warning text. So because it is that, I'm going to give you five warnings regarding sin in the lives of Christians and sin especially toward the church and in the church. Five warnings. Here's the first. Beware of money and reputation. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. Coming right off the heels of that story about Barnabas. Look how great Barnabas is, but let's, let's compare him to somebody else. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. Now, before we go any further, you need to know that Ananias and Sapphira are um, church-going people. We are not talking here about somebody who is out in the community who has nothing to do with faith in Jesus Christ. These are people in the church, been there for a while, who are going to try to do what Barnabas did. Well-liked people, people like you, people like me. And what they decide to do, they do together. Ananias chooses to do this with his wife's supplier. They sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Um, These guys are rich. You need to know that. People who owned land in those days, just one piece of land, they were wealthy. If you owned more than one piece of land, you were like super, super wealthy. So we're talking about the top of the 1% here. Rich people see that people in the church have a need and they decide that they're gonna do what Barnabas did. They sold the property and they give some of the money to the church. Now this in and of itself is not a sin. This is nothing wrong with this. Like we're reading this thinking, oh, so? The problem is they go only gave a portion of it and they reported or made it sound like when they reported it to Peter, it was the whole price. You, you can actually imagine the, the conversation at the dinner table between Ananias and Sapphira. Sunday night after Barnabas has given his gift. Honey, did you see all of the people and the look in their eyes toward our rich friend Barnabas? I mean, they were enamored with how generous he was. I imagine, I imagine that we could do the same thing. Yes, but honey, shouldn't we keep some of that money for ourselves? I mean, like, how are we going to live? Or that was our retirement plan, or that was the thing. We were going to buy a pool with that. Okay. Well, what we'll do is we'll take the money, we'll give 75%, and we'll keep 25%. But if we say that in front of everyone, they're going to say, you're not as good as Barnabas. So we're going to make it sound like we did the same thing as Barnabas, keep 25%. Who's going to know? Right? Who's going to? It's you and me sitting here at the dinner table who's going to know. And so they do it. 
Smiles on their face. You can imagine them coming forward at church, that the same as Barnabas, with you know their bag of money. We sold this property, shared it with all their friends, dropped it at the front, and people are like, wow, just like Barnabas. Smiles on their faces, thrilled about what's about to happen. Can I stop here? I need you to notice in this passage that Luke is highlighting a couple of issues that these people have that many of us struggle with as well. The two things that he highlights are num- number one, they have a love of money, otherwise they would have given it all and not worried about it. And second, they have a love of their reputation. And that's why they're lying. They love money and they love their reputation. Can I just t- tell you that um, the love of money and the love of reputation make you do crazy, stupid things? Crazy stupid things. It was like this then, it is like it now. The love of money makes you do stupid things, uh, and Luke especially wants you to see this. Um, Luke, when he writes his, his gospel, Luke, and then he follows it with the book of Acts, he has a number of characters in his book and in the follow-on in the book of Acts that are kind of negative examples of how you should not treat your money. And in each example, the people end up in really bad places. And so early on in the book of Luke, he has a story in Luke 12 about a guy named, a guy who's called the rich fool, who has too much uh, that he's farmed. He gets a big harvest. And so he's sitting there on his deck thinking, well, what am I going to do with all the, all, the, all the extra grain? And the answer is you should be leaving it in the field so that the gleaners can come by and pick it up, so the poor people can come by and pick it up and have something for themselves. But he's like, no, you know what I'll do? I'll build bigger barns so that I'm really happy. And so he sits down with his lemonade, and I'm, my soul is happy, he says, after he builds these bigger barns, and then God interrupts him and says, hey, um, your soul is required of you tonight. Now who's gonna, now what are all the bigger barns gonna do for you? Don't be like him, says Luke. Luke 16, so that's Luke 12. Luke 16, there's a story about this guy named Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man doesn't even have a name. We just call him the rich man, or in in Latin, Dives. Lazarus sits at at, at the gate of the rich man's house, and the rich man passes him by every day, gives no thought to him. The dogs come and lick the wounds of Lazarus. He's that in need. Both of them die on the same day. Lazarus goes and he's basically in heaven and the rich man's in hell. What do you think that Luke is trying to say there? Beware of hoarding and giving no mind to those who don't have anything. It might end you in an awkward place. Luke 18 uh, there's this rich guy who shows up to, uh, to, to Jesus, says, hey, what, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, keep the law. Yeah, I've done all of that. And Jesus is like, okay, let's start with the law number one. You shall have no other gods before me. I think that you have money in a more important position in your life than you have me. So let's put that to the test. Here we go. Um, go, take everything you have, sell it, give it to the poor, and then, then come follow me, Right? And the guy's like, no, no way. And he walks away sad. And Jesus says, how hard is it for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? This guy is not going to enter the kingdom of heaven because his heart is so attached to his wealth. What do you think Luke's trying to say there? 
Beware of, uh, beware of your love of money might end you in difficult places. And then you get to the beginning of Acts here, and you get to this story about this guy named Ananias, and he sits down with his wife and says to his wife, hey, we should just keep some of the money back. We don't need to tell anybody. We can just keep it back. An act of hoarding. Where do you think it's going to lead? Um, like I said, the, the, the title is that time when the Holy Spirit killed a couple of liars. The love of money makes us do the most ridiculous, stupid things. And that's Luke's big point in much of his gospel. Be careful. Be careful. It still, makes, it still makes us do stupid things. Some of you lined up for Black Friday. You were up at two in the morning to go get a TV. I did this one time in my life. I remember lining up for, for a TV at a place called Circuit City, which is out of business now. I got there at 2 a.m. and I was like 190th in line. Waited there for four hours in the freezing cold. I get to the front of, of the store. People are running by me and punching me to get into the store ahead of me. Finally, I get in there. You know, you, I'm a big guy, so after a while, I'm just getting angry and I'm elbowing people out of the way, you know? And I get to this TV and they said, oh, we sold out of that particular TV because we had like five of them, right? Circuit City. Anyway, I, I go to other stores. I look for like I, I got beat up. I came back with the twisted ankles and all sorts of things. And I decided, well, what in the world are we doing? You guys have seen it online, right? Every year, there's some fight at Walmart over you know whatever. Used to be DVD players. Think about that right now. A DVD player. We don't even use them anymore. But we fought for that DVD player. There are people who kill other people to steal something from them that they send sell for a hundred bucks. We, we lie, we cheat, we injure for money. For money. And yet the scriptures are really trying to encourage you. You know, if you're a Christian, why not just be content with what you have? Why not just be cool with what the Lord has given you? So Paul in Philippians chapter 4, he makes this argument in one of the most famous verses in the entire Bible. It's the verse that people put on their shoes or their shirts before they go and, like, uh, go and get in some sort of prize fight. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? I'm going to punch you in the face in, in Jesus' name. Here's the context. Paul said, I, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you, you meaning the Philippian church, have revived your concern for me. Their concern showed up in, in the form of a, of, of a monetary gift. They sent a guy, Epaphroditus, and he handed over this monetary gift from a church to a church planter. I'm thankful that you revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you didn't have any opportunity you didn't know how to get me the money. Not, but not that I'm speaking of being in need. For I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I don't want you to get the wrong idea. I don't need the money. It's great that you gave it, but I, I, don't, I don't need the money. See, I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound 
In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. I've learned the secret of abundance and need. What's the secret? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In other words, if I've got Jesus, I've got enough. I don't need to pin my heart to money or to the lack of my... I can live high on the hog. I can live with nothing at all because in each situation, I have a sovereign God who loves me and will take care of me. If you're a Christian, that's true of you. You don't need to stand in the line and punch people in order to get more. You don't. You don't. You're free of it. So beware of the love of money, but also beware of the love of reputation. It makes you do crazy things as well. I ride my bike. That's how I got injured. I will still ride my bike afterwards. I ride my bike, but I'm not a cyclist. There's a difference. I ride my bike, and I know enough about bikes to be dangerous. Cyclists are the ones who work at the bike shop and make you feel stupid for knowing nothing. Yet you know these people, they stand behind there and they say, so what kind of gear ratio do you have? And you're like, I don't know. Do we have, there are gears on this thing? I have no idea what that is. Five, right? There are five gears, right? First, second, third. No, 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 the ratio. I don't know. What's in your bottom sprocket? I don't know what that is. I don't know. I'm not the guy who knows all of those things. But listen, when I go into the bike shop, I pretend that I am. The guy starts talking to me about bottom bolt brackets and derailers and things like that. I know the words, and I'll stand over the bike and go, yeah, yeah, I I think it's a Shimano um, 105 component. I don't know what that is. Like, I read it online one time. It's supposed to be something good. And, And he'll say, yeah, yeah, they're totally Ultegras. That's better than the 105s. Oh, yeah, who wants a 105? I'll say, I'm dead lying. I have no idea. Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Seriously, the guy behind the counter at the bike shop has maybe his high school diploma. I have a doctorate. I'm acting like I need to fit in in the bike shop, like I know something. Why do I do it? The same reason that you do it, men, when you stand over a car and you know nothing about it, or you go golfing and talk about the slope angle of the... the, I don't even know. But Because you want to fit in. You want people to receive you. You want your reputation to be such that you're the kind of person who knows stuff about this. You know, you look down upon by the group that you're trying to fit in into. So you learn the lingo, you say the words, you do all those things. You're lying, though. And why are you lying? Well, for the sake of your reputation. Well, it's ridiculous. Yeah, we do ridiculous stuff in order to save our reputations or protect our reputations. In fact, for most of us, our reputation is the most important thing in our lives. I sat at a, um, an elders meeting of a church that we were looking to replant. And there were a number of elders there. And there was a woman at the end who, uh, who was considered an elder. And she was um, taking notes. And throughout the meeting, she kept talking about the pastor as the worst human being she knew. He's terrible. He's horrible. And I was like, man, this pastor. She would use his name. She would talk about I found out that she was the former pastor's wife who's still on the board. 
the former pastor was kicked out. She stayed on the board, and now she was talking about the guy who replaced her husband in the worst terms. About 45 minutes into the meeting, the guy at the end of the table who had said nothing at this point finally said, Linda, it would be nice if you stopped talking about me like that when I'm here. And I was like, what? <laughs> Come to find out, the former pastor his reputation had been injured, and he sent his wife in to rescue his reputation, and she was destroying the church in the process. You say, that's stupid. Yes, it's stupid, because that's what we do for our reputations. We do stupid stuff. Lie, cheat. You know, the gospel says you don't need that, right? You, you don't need your reputation. The apostle Paul says stuff like, I, my only boast is in Christ. You know why? Because he's like, if you knew the truth about me, it's worse than what you already think. Like if I were outed on the internet, that's not even as bad as what's really inside of me. So the only boast I have is not my name, not my reputation. The only boast I have is in Jesus. So you don't need to fight for your reputation anymore. You know that? Listen, you guys need to listen faster in what you're doing because I'm getting too off track. Here we go. Okay, here's the second one. Beware of money and reputation. Second one, um, beware of the enemy. Look at verse three. Uh, but Peter said, so they, they've made their plan, Ananias and Sapphira, but Peter said, Ananias, <laughs> why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? So he shows up. Somehow Peter knows. We, we take this to be a supernatural knowledge. The Holy Spirit has given him knowledge. Hey, these guys are liars. And what he says about it, about the meeting they had to concoct this scheme, what he says about it is, Satan did it. Why has Satan filled your heart? The same language is used of Judas in Luke 22, where Judas is sitting at the table and it says, the Satan entered him and then he carried out his plan. So Peter's basically saying here, um, why are you walking in the footsteps of Judas? Why are you giving Satan a foothold in your life, in, in our community? We, we should probably take note of this, that um, Satan doesn't decide that he's going to give up on, on troubling the church or people in the church when they come to faith in Christ. You, you know this, right? It's not like you came to faith in Jesus and he's like, ah, nuts. Well, this is done. Like he, he opposes the church, visibly opposes through persecution, through governmental systems, through whatever. He, he opposes the church, empowering those who want to fight back against it. And he dissolves it from within. You know that you don't always have to fight the battle by you know, doing the, the, the brave heart or Lord of the Rings charge across the field with all your spears. There are places in the world where that's the case with Satan, right? He manifests and the power of God manifests and you know, the demon gets cast out or whatever. There's, there are uh, uh, 
the, the worshipers of Baal on Mount Carmel moments where God shows up in power, right? That aggressive face-to-face battle. Well, that's not the only way that Satan does his work. In fact, he, he does a quieter work, usually behind the scenes, inside of churches, by getting people to become bitter, by getting people to stand on their opinion, by getting people to love their reputation more than anything else, by getting people to love money. This is his work. This is his work. And Peter sees it. I have a friend who uh, is from Africa, and he's, he gets asked all the time, why is it that in Africa, when I go to Africa, I see all sorts of manifestations of spiritual power, but in Canada, which is where he lives, I don't see it ever. Is it because Satan's not as involved? <laughs> My friend Ezra is like, no. He said, dude, it's, it's terrible in Africa what happens, but it's clear what happens here in the West, where he's moved, he says, there are people who don't believe in Satan, and he owns them. He owns them through reputation and through love of money and through... You can hear the, Satan whisper it, right? Every time you drive by a billboard or you see the new car that you think you have, you, your life would be better. Your life would be better if you had that. Oh, you're going to let that guy talk to you like that? Look at all these people around here. They don't believe anything good about you. You need to stand up for yourself, man. Don't turn, don't turn the other cheek. What are you talking about? What will people think? You guys hear it. You've got to resist him. You've got to beware of the enemy. Right? Beware of money and reputation. Beware of the enemy. Third, beware of what you're hiding. Beware of what you're hiding. So, verse 3 again. Um, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart, listen, to lie to the Holy Spirit? Huh? Wait a minute, he's lying. Ananias and Sapphira are probably not thinking to themselves when they come to church that day, you know what, we're going to go and lie to the Holy Spirit today. What they're thinking is, well, we're just, I mean, we're, we're, it's a little fib in front of the church. But what's the big deal? This is a church. You will find in the scriptures a, a very common um, thing, especially in the New Testament. You, you will find that um, over and over again, the church is equated with, with Jesus. What you do to the church is what you do with Jesus. Hold on to that for a second. One more thing. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and, see this? Keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. That, word, that phrase, keep back, is from um, the story of Achan. Do you guys know the story of Achan? It's very easy. I'll follow just really quickly, okay? Achan is the story in the Old Testament. Um, the people of Israel have been told now, Moses is gone, Joshua is told, hey, go take the land. He goes in, the first place they go to is Jericho, and there's a bunch of walls there, and God says, right, I want you to walk around seven times, and the walls will fall, and they're like, yeah, okay. And they do it, the walls fall down, and they go in, and they take possession of all the stuff. Now, there was a rule. When you go in and take the stuff, don't take any of it for yourself. All of the stuff belongs to the Lord. 
But this dude, Achan, he goes in and he grabs some silver and, and a robe and a few other things, and he hides it underneath his bunk, basically. Then they go a little further, the nation does, and they go and try to attack another na nation called I, another people named I, and they lose. So they're freaking out, because they're like, oh my gosh, God has brought us in here, and now he's going to kill us all. So they start complaining to the Lord, and the Lord says, listen, the reason you lost at I is because there's sin in the camp. You need to root it out. So what they do is they get the whole people of Israel in front of them. They say, um, right, I want, you, they, by lot, they cast lots. And they do the lot on, you know, a tribe and then a clan and then finally a family. And they, you're, it's like your Thanksgiving family's lined up there. And then the lot falls on Achan. The Lord has like directed the path to Achan. And Achan's shaking and they say, did you do something like this? And Achan's like, yeah, I stole it, I stole it, go look. And they look underneath and they find silver and a bunch of stuff. Then they take Achan, put him in a pit and stone him to death. That's the story. What Peter's trying to do when he uses this language, Holy Spirit, and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land, he's trying to say that this story about Ananias is Achan 2.0. And it's fascinating how it, how it shows up, right? If you compare Achan and Ananias, what you've got is the covenant community is called to mission, right? In, in the Old Testament, hey, go take the land. In the New Testament, hey, go share the gospel. They're given power from God in both cases. Joshua said, I'll be with you, the Lord says to him. Also, the people of, of, of uh, the church, I'll be with you wherever you go. They experience opposition, right? In... in uh, in Jericho in the Old Testament, they experience opposition by the religious leaders. They get arrested and then they get set free. And then the sin of greed and deception threatens their mission. Achan hides the stuff because he's greedy. Ananias hides stuff back because he's greedy. And then the sin is rooted out. Do you see what Peter's, what he's trying to do? He's trying to say, hey guys, do you guys remember the story of Achan? This is the same basic thing. And the sin that Achan was guilty of was hiding things from the Lord. It was a secret sin that he buried under everything else. You guys have noticed that in our culture these days, we're really good at hiding stuff, right? Like the real thing. Church people are really good at this, but here, I, I got some pictures here. Um, some of them are good. This is uh, the Instagram versus the real. So this woman is the same as this woman, but not really. Here's another one. If you wanna visit this street, this is the real picture over here. See, it's kind of bland and gross, but then they made it look massively purple. Don't you wanna see the purple place? Tough, it's not real. You get to see it on Instagram. Here's Gordon Ramsay. See all these lines in his, hey, where'd the lines go, Gordon? You're getting younger every day, buddy. And here's my favorite one. The Instagram girl is hating, and this is the real girl who's picking out on the spaghetti. Right, we're, 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 we're used to this stuff. Like we're, we're, we're good at hiding. Church people are especially good at hiding. If you, ask, if you ask me, one of the things that I have had to come to grips with as a pastor is sometimes you sit down in a counseling meeting with a couple of people who you see, think you know really well and then they get into it and all of a sudden you realize that there's a whole bunch of stuff going on in their lives that they've been hiding from everyone else. But because they dress really well or they show up really well in, the, in church one day, you, you just don't see it happening. 
We're really good at hiding things and keeping them un under wraps. Do you know the story of David and Bathsheba? This is basically what happened. Uh, David goes, he sees Bathsheba, he gets really excited for her, he decides to come, have her be brought. He's, he's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Doesn't matter, bring her to my chambers. He has sexual relations with her, forces himself on her basically, and then realizes a few months later that she's pregnant. So now he's got to cover up the crime. So he orders Uriah, who's out fighting, to be brought back. He tries to tempt Uriah into going into his wife, but Uriah is too faithful to the men out in the field. So he won't go in. Finally, David's sick of it. So he sends in Uriah's hands orders to have him put at the front of the line when they go back out to battle so that he will die. Put him in front and then withdraw him. Uriah carries his own death sentence to the front, doesn't read it, to the front, hands it over to the commander who's like, oh my gosh. Uriah gets killed, and at the end of it, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband, and when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. Deal done. Hey, it worked, says David. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Remember the Lord? Remember that guy? He saw it. He always sees it. I was watching this video the other day where this guy was walking up to people and he was saying, I know what you did. And then he'd walk away. He's a stranger. I know what you did. And the people, they'd keep the video on the people afterwards and the people froze. You do know what God, God knows what you did, right? The thing that you think that nobody else knows about, the thing that you have dedicated much of your life to hiding, he knows. Do you really think that you can hide from the knower of all things? Yes, but I've been really deliberate and careful. Hmm? He knows. Hold on to that. The th fourth one, um, beware of trashing Christ's bride. This is what I began just a minute ago. I want to pick it up again. Verses three and four. Um, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? To, to, there it is, lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain on your own? Or in your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Um, in the book of Acts later on, what you'll find is uh, the, the apostle Paul, and he's riding down a road uh, to a place called Damascus, and he, here he's, he's been threatening the church, trying to kill people in the church, and here all of a sudden Jesus shows up in the clouds, but Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest, asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem, right? So talk about a persecutor. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice from heaven, this is Jesus speaking, saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Was Saul persecuting Jesus? Well, he was persecuting the church. 
right, which is like persecuting Jesus. Don't believe it? Here's 1 Corinthians 3. Um, Don't you know that you, this you, is a plural, so it's y'all. Okay? Do you not know that y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in y'all? The church, God's temple, God's spirit dwells in the church. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and y'all are that temple. In other words, be very, very, very careful the way you handle the church of Jesus. The church is called the bride of Christ. It's safe to say that what you do to the bride, you do to the groom. What you do to the bride, you do to the groom. And that should make sense to you who are married. My wife, Jeannie, if you came to her and you said to her, um, I don't like you, I've got these issues with you, and here are the 10 different things that I think are disgusting and wrong about you, I might get a little irritated with you. If you decide, right, that you're gonna come to my wife and you're gonna sue her for something, I might get a little irritated with you. You, th- you think that you're just doing that to her? And that I'm somehow on your side? Hmm. Do you not know she's my bride? If you decide to steal from her, you're stealing from me. What you do to the bride, you do to the groom. Jesus doesn't take our trashing of other believers lightly. So see what happens. Here we go, okay? So there's four warnings. Here's the fifth one. Beware of God's response. Here's the rest of the passage. Pretty straightforward. Um, When Ananias heard these words, uh, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. Of course it did. The young men rose and they wrapped him up and carried him out and they buried him. Immediately. So after an interval, interval about, uh, of about three hours, his, his wife came in, not knowing what, what had happened. I don't know, she was shopping. She was, I don't know what she was doing. Maybe she was fixing the house. I don't know. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. Peter, you dog, you are setting her up. He's like, oh, yeah. Did you tell, sell the land for so much? And she said, oh, yeah, sure, absolutely, for that much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. It's not surprising, the last line in this. All and great fear... (laughs) came upon the whole church and upon all who had heard of these things. So when you read that, let me give you the objection that you're gonna hear or that might be in your mind. There's two objections. Here's one. Uh, Objection one, hey, isn't that overboard? Like, why do they die? Well, um, let me give you two theological words. Uh, there's a word called transcendence and the word called imminence. You excited about this, right? Right toward the end of the sermon, I just gave you two great words, transcendence and imminence. Imminence means near, nearness. Imminent, imminent things are things that you can reach out and touch and have a familiarity with. Transcendent things are things that are far above and untouchable for you and me. We believe that God is both transcendent, meaning he's holy, set apart, 
and imminent in Christ. In fact, when we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate the transcendent God becoming imminent in Jesus. Some churches will treasure the transcendence of God over the imminence of God. They will end up having big, high ceilings. And when you walk in, you feel very, very small. And they'll insist you speak in language that is lofty. And when you pray, you use these and thous, because that's how you talk to God. Other churches, like ours, we believe a lot in imminence. We, Jesus came. God is more of our buddy, we tend to think. And so then we have these, you know, rooms that feel warm and inviting. And hey, come near to God. Jesus loves you. You are loved, we say at the end. And we use really familiar language with Jesus. I've had people pray with me before. Hey, bro. They'll say to Jesus, right? Here's the problem with churches like ours. In our approach to imminence, we can easily forget his transcendence. And if you forget the transcendence of God, you forget a major portion of what the Bible says about him. So in Exodus 19, when God comes on the mountain, they're not allowed to touch the mountain. If a cow goes onto the mountain, comes back off, and they touch the cow, they're going to die. You do not approach God like that. Isaiah sees God high and lifted up and he's freaked out for his life because you don't stand before a holy God without being frightened for your life. God is transcendent. He's not our buddy. He's holy. And passages like these, they shock us because we tend to privilege imminence over transcendence. So it's not, but this passage is not overboard if you have a healthy dose of the transcendence and holiness of God. If you understand that God is not to be trifled with. But the bigger objection isn't that, hey, isn't this overboard? The bigger objection is this, and this is what we'll say to end it all. Um, why doesn't God do this now? I've lied in church before. And not in this sermon. <laughs> you guys ever presented yourselves to be something that you're different? You're not at church? You ever, have you ever used the church to your own benefit? Your hoarded money? Reported it differently? And yet you're here. How do you explain that? God has two ways of dealing with his rebels. One way is he can wipe them out. He can Ananias and Sapphira them. But the second way is he can make them into his friends. He either wipes out the rebels or he makes the rebel into his Friends, isn't it odd that you are sitting here today hearing a, a passage and a message about Ananias and Sapphira who hid, hid a bunch of sins and treated the church with disregard and had love of money and love of their reputation? And here you sit, knowing full well that inside your own hearts you have the same kinds of things going on, and yet you have a moment. I believe enough in a sovereign God to know that every one of you is here by his providence, that he brought you here today. He brought you here so you could hear exactly what I'm trying to tell you. He's giving you a moment. 
So what do you want to do? He's not to be trifled with, this God. He's not to be trifled with. God placed you in your seat and this passage in our schedule is an offer of repentance before judgment. He knows your heart. He knows my heart. He knows our addiction to money and reputation. He knows how we've given the devil a foothold in our lives. He knows and has heard of our degradation of his own people. He knows what we're hiding. So what do you want to do? Do you want to risk being wiped out or do you want to become his friends? Because here's the best thing that you're going to hear in your whole life. Ready? Jesus loves hypocrites. He loves them loves them, loves them, loves them. He will invite them into his house. He will welcome them. He will walk with them for all eternity on one condition, that they admit they're hypocrites. And instead of standing in that hypocrisy and saying, oh, look how great I am for this and that, and still hiding everything, they come clean, they stand before God and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. This, this is who I am. This is who I am. And I don't want to hide anymore. I want the gospel to come. I want your forgiveness to come. I want your spirit to come and free me from the addiction that I have to myself, my money, my reputation, all of it. I don't want to hide anymore, God. I don't want to hide. So what do you want to do? I urge you not to go to bed tonight without realizing what a wonderful door and opportunity the Lord has opened to you that might not be there in the days to come. Let me pray. Father, I, I, my, my friends here, man, this passage is about church people <laughs> like me and them and how we act. We trifle with you, Lord, we do. And yet, Lord, I pray that in your kindness, which you have de demonstrated by our, our presence here, I pray, Lord, that in your kindness that you, you would help us, that you would help us to act. You would help us to confess to you what's real and what's true. You see all things, and you would help us, Father, to turn away from them and turn back to you. You welcome us just like you welcome the, the prodigal son when he comes running back after he comes to his senses and you don't wait for him to come and bow down before you. Instead, you just you hug us. You run to us and you welcome us. So God, would you welcome us sinners, repenting sinners, Father? That's who we are. That's what marks us. We ask all of these things in the grace of our Lord Jesus. Amen.